Are you ready to crush Kickstarter? If you're like me, you probably think of crowdfunding as a way to launch your product, using it to raise the money needed to fund your startup. Well, we might be all wrong. Peak Design did it differently, and they are killing it on Kickstarter, having raised more than $16 million across seven projects in as many years. So, what is founder Peter Daring's secret? Getting the product ready to ship before launching the campaign, then use the campaign to build buzz and sales, Counterintuitive? Yep, and that's only the beginning. We discuss his crazy early bird pricing concept that drives massive sales, plus margins, shipping, logistics, customer service, how to make a great video, and so much more. If you're considering using Kickstarter to launch your product, you absolutely must listen to this episode. Cycle, the podcast by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. This episode is brought to you by Health IQ. If you're like me and you stay fit, active, and healthy, then you know what a drag it is to pay higher life insurance premiums just because you're lumped in with everyone else. As a business owner, if I can save money, it goes back to my bottom line. As you'll hear a little later in this episode, Health IQ can save us all real money on life insurance if we're in shape. Stay tuned to hear how. But first, let's focus in on how Peter got started. So Peter, you are the sole founder of Peak Design, which makes camera bags and stuff. And I kind of want to start with some numbers to lure people in because what you guys have done on Kickstarter is pretty phenomenal. So across the campaigns that you've done, how much money have you raised? Uh, I, I'm pretty sure that the last one put us north of 16 million. That's impressive. Just what was the biggest campaign so far in terms of dollars raised? The Everyday Backpack uh, sling and tote. It was kind of three bags, but the backpacks were certainly the, the primary driver of those things. Okay. And how much was that one? Just uh, that campaign? Six, 6.5 million for the Kickstarter. Nice. And then how many projects total have you launched through crowdfunding? Um, we've done seven and one each calendar year since 2011. And, uh, I'd say if we're predicting trends, we might see another one in 2018. <laughs> All right. So to fill people in a little bit, Peak Design, you started with a camera clip that could attach to any strap or belt and hold an SLR camera. But you've really grown that catalog to include bags and packs and cases and other things, mostly related to getting cameras in their gear from one place to another safely or just making them more accessible to use. So I want to ask a few questions about the products and the brand first, and then we'll dive pretty deep into how you guys have just absolutely crushed Kickstarter. So... Where did you get the capital to launch that first product? Uh, my uh, my own pocket, um, for the most part. I uh, well, I had about twenty five thousand dollars saved up, and um, you know, I quit my job and lived real frugally, and ran out of money about nine months after um, I had I had quit my previous job. I was a construction engineer, like a project manager. Um, 
And at that point, I did need to pay money for some tooling. And so uh, dear old mom and dad gave me $25,000, which which paid for that first tooling, which was financed as as a loan to them. Nice. So even your parents do not have any equity in your company. No, they totally missed the boat on that one. And I don't even know who to blame because I think the three of us were entirely naive about about uh, startup finance. Right. So it was just wasn't even on the table. Man, so I, I'm kind of curious. Like at that stage, you had this idea for this little clip that would go on your belt or your backpack strap, and you'd been working on the idea. It seems like for quite a while, like you know, a year or more. I mean, what kind of projections did you do? Did you think, okay, this could be a $100,000 business, this could be a $2 million business, like what What was going on in your head as far as, at that time, Where how big did you think this could get? You know, this is always kind of a slightly embarrassing part of the conversation for me because that really wasn't my calculation. The calculation was simply, um, do I think this is a big enough problem where I can convince people to buy it? And I guess I did, thinking back, I was like, I bet I can easily get a thousand people to buy one of these things. And I also remember doing some some calculations because I was planning on just selling this thing in camera stores. That was the only known market for me. You can see like I really wasn't focused oh, on man, that was probably good that that didn't work out. <laughs> Dude, I, I, I know, but like at the same time it was plenty rosy. I was like, well, let's see here. There seems to be about one camera store per 10 million people that count and if I can just sell 10 of these clips a, a day in each one of those and quickly you start doing the multiplication and it was like, wow, even if I'm off by a factor of two, you know, uh, we still got a business here. And even though that was exceptionally naive, it was it was kind of correct because um, it doesn't take selling that many products when you're an individual person to create a profitable business. And that was the whole goal from day one. Make a thing for a certain amount and sell it for more and live off <laughs> what we call the profits. Nice. And at this point, were you like when you started when you actually started working on developing the project and getting tooling was it still just you or did you have to bring on some other people to help yeah it was me for uh, so the timeline is kind of like march of 2010 i finally quit my job and sort of i like i started like prototyping that day because i had already done a lot of sketching and a hell of a lot of thinking about things um but the 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 type of prototyping i'm talking about is uh, hysterical considering what we can do in our shop right now. And just like my, my, my level of knowledge, it it was actually good for creating some very rudimentary proofs of concept. Like what does it feel like to have a big weight on your backpack strap? But, um, now it, it, I guess your question was, was, did it remain me? And yeah, it remained me, um, until about 15 months later. That's when I brought on my buddy, Adam, who's our current head of marketing, and said, like, hey, man, you know how to build websites, right? And mm-hmm. he was, uh, at the time, severely underemployed. He's, he's one of the smartest guys I know, and he had been doing construction labor in, um, uh, in New Zealand and, like, bartending in Melbourne, just traveling, being a bum, um, sick of corporate America. So 15 months solo. Right on. And so at what point in the 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 cycle of the company did he join in before that first Kickstarter or after? It was about 14 days after the first Kickstarter. It was May 16th, I recall. So you actually brought that whole first campaign to life on your own. 
I did, yeah. And um, it had never really occurred to me to bring someone on before that, believe it or not. And this is like, don't get me wrong, I'm certainly, I'm doing all I can to ask people questions because I know nothing about starting a business, about designing a product. And I, for some reason, I feel like the resources, to the like kind of the playbook, the instruction manual, which I, I do believe exists today because Peak Design has written one uh, for anyone else who wants to be able to kind of try to do what we did. Um, we've tried to write some simple steps but I never found that playbook. Um, and so it, it was really, really kind of slow going and, and, and sort of inventing the process along the way. Well, that was, I mean, when you guys started too, though, Kickstarter was still a relatively new thing. Uh, you know, people were still figuring that out. Um, I'm, I'm curious, in, the, in that cycle, so you, 15 months or so from the day you quit your job to bringing this thing and launching, like when, at what point did you say, you know, hey, maybe... Maybe camera stores and retail isn't the right path. Maybe I should crowdfund this. Uh, January of 2011. So now I'm about, you know, I'm about 10 months in. Um, heard from my buddy. I, so I, I like tangentially heard of Kickstarter. I feel like three times in the course of the same week. And one of them was from a good buddy of mine. He's kind of a Silicon Valley dude. And he's like, Pete, I know what you're, you know, what you're trying to do. And I think this Kickstarter thing is going to be awesome for you. You got to check it out. And I went to the website and, you know, I think you're, I always kind of remember being drawn to like most funded projects. They kind of put that as top level messaging and just looked at a couple of those. And I was just like, holy shit, this is, I can do this. This is exactly it. Like they're like no brainer. I was like, oh, okay, here's marketing. Got that done. Now I need to make a video. Um, it just, like the, 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 the timing of it could not have been more serendipitous. Yeah, man, I, I hope you bought that guy a beer for recommending it. Uh, I did. In fact, I launched it from his rooftop, and uh, although I think he bought me the beer, actually, believe it or not, uh, but <laughs> well yeah. played. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so that first product, you, you said about twenty five thousand dollars you had to borrow to do tooling. Like, what what was the total startup cost to bring that first clip to market? Um, I, I, I kind of factored at about seventy five thousand because I had started. I had gotten a job. I attempted to get a bartending job, but ended up with more of a glorified busboy position at a restaurant in San Francisco called Delfina. So that kept me going for a little bit, a little while. And then I actually went back to the well um, with my folks during the Kickstarter campaign, um, which was so they, they they gave me, if I recall correctly, another twenty five thousand, um, and that was like after the after the excitement had been demonstrated and it was like hey mom and dad i don't need to make 1000 of these i need to make 10000 of these but i don't have any money for it um and you know my folks are not uh again we were all naive to this my dad is a firefighter my mom was a nurse they didn't have like a ton of scratch squirreled away but they were i think they could see the promise and i and i told them they were going to get paid back real quick and and they believed in it, um, but it is, you know, looking back on it, it's a crucial part of the story. If I wouldn't have got that that fifty thousand from them, um, it probably would have been a different story. I probably would have had to give away some portion of the company, and that was never asked of me. So, very so, un, an, another lucky thing. Yeah, I'm really curious why, because isn't the whole point of crowdfunding is to raise the money you need before you need it? So, why did you need that fifty k just to even get through the Kickstarter? Because it had never occurred to me, and this is another lucky thing, that I should wait 
until the end of funding. Like, you know, that, that, that train is moving. Uh, that train of like manufacturing and production, that thing is already moving. And I kind of lucked into the notion of having production happening during the campaign because that what that allowed me to do was give real updates that were genuinely interesting to people, release pre-production units. I released a 200 early birds, I actually charged double for them, and they sold out like hotcakes. Huh. And I was able to ship those products during the campaign, which required me to take the chance that the people might take the take the product and withdraw their funding. But nobody did that. And and it was just it created this incredible buzz. People got it and they're like, holy shit, this thing works. And um, like these were kind of some of the early tactics of Kickstarter, sort of like guerrilla type type tactics that a lot of companies have now um, employed. In their in in their subsequent Kickstarters, because what you do is you obviously look at what's well what's gotten the most funding. So people have kind of been studying our campaigns for a while, and we've done a lot of things that have been out on the on the on the cutting edge, if you will. Well, that's pretty cool. It's actually the first time I'd heard of that. I just assumed everybody was waiting until they got their money to start production. It, it's actually literally the number one piece of advice that I give to people um, now is don't wait. To make this thing until you get the funding because what happens is it takes a long time to bring a product to market like and way longer than you expect I've never seen anyone bring a physical product to market on schedule and so if you can eliminate those variables know when it's actually happening what you do is you get to preserve the momentum that's created during the campaign because there's no greater time of momentum and marketing behind your product than during a Kickstarter, like especially right towards the end of a Kickstarter, it's really ramping up. And the quicker you can ship those products, the more you preserve that momentum and roll it straight into business as usual, which is incredibly important. Awesome. And so just let's finish up with a little bit about your company real fast. So you guys have grown solely off of revenues from day one, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I'd say I'd say I'd make the distinction there and said solely off of profits. Profits. Awesome. So have you guys been profitable? Like once that first campaign was out and the products were delivered, have you guys been profitable since? Yeah. That's like awesome, man. Year, year one, when it was just me and then I started paying Adam partway through, like the, the company profited $279,000. Wow. And like this was a damn near miraculous. I mean, <laughs> I, uh, it was it was absolutely incredible. Um and we, it was convenient because I, I also had a baby uh, during the middle of that campaign, um, kind of, uh, you know, as a 28-year-old 20, kid, basically. Um, I, I had a kid and needed to pay for that. So that was pretty convenient that that happened, um, <laughs> you know, as opposed to losing money. I don't know what I would have. Have you thought about bringing in outside capital or, or ever come close to needing that other than that first one? You know, no. Um, well, I've certainly thought about it a whole lot um, to the degree that we we sort of point to the the lack of doing that as one of the truly magical things about peak design. Um, and you know, I can talk about that at great length. But let's just say that we we've, we've highly considered it, um, not because we've highly desired it, but we've more considered of considered it from the standpoint of. One of the things that has made Peak Design great is the fact that we don't have outside capital. How big is your team now? Um, we're at about 35, um, and the kind of the last five of those 
are folks that are working at the store. So we opened up a flagship store in an incredible location in Hayes Valley in San Francisco. And against all odds, it's doing really well. Um, it's just, it's an awesome place of community engagement. We've got incredible employees there. Everyone's having a good time. So that's kind of another experiment gone right. Um, so 35 folks. Great. All right, let's get into Kickstarter. Uh, when you launched that first product, you guys were an unknown. So why you kind of talked about why you choose Kickstarter, your friend turned you on to it. Um, but why, like, as far as crowdfunding platforms go, why Kickstarter instead of Indiegogo or something else? Sure. I'll answer that question in a second, but when you talk about people, I, I, I really do want to mention um, we're, we're kind of settled out at like you know 30 headquarter people and five people in the store, but we've got a team in Austin that works for our customer service, and they're, they're with a company called MindStart. Um, and we've got a team in the Philippines that's helping us with wholesale operations, um, and we've got, of course, our uh, Asian manufacturing. And you add in all of these people and all the full-time people, it's it's closer to just north of 500 people. Wow. And I think that uh, that gets lost a lot in all the things that we're doing. So we, we're 30 people at a headquarter, but there's a lot of folks who are dependent on, on this company, at least at the moment, um, for, for their living. So Mind Start is the customer service? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what's the set in Philippines was logistics? Uh, it's more uh, wholesale operations, pro- pro- basically order processing. Okay, so everything shipped there, and then they kit it out and send it. To- no, no, no. These these guys are just doing. They're kind of like so. It used to be work that we did exclusively in San Francisco, um, but it's just fulfilling, like using computers to fulfill wholesale orders. The the whole purchase order process. And then, and then, and then the logistics of getting that those products to them is in, increasingly complex, especially as we have more and more SKUs. You know, we're at about 80 SKUs right now, so it's very time-consuming, very detail-oriented work. Um, but that's how we're going to be able to scale that without having to add headcount in, in very expensive San Francisco. Right. Okay, so then where is the, so they're doing the, the back-end work just to make sure that the orders are going to the right places at the right time? Yep. Where is the, like, where is everything warehoused and shipped from? Do you use a third-party shipping, like logistics yep. warehouse? Yep, we use a 3PL called Shipwire. Um, oh, yeah, okay. I've heard of them. called Micro, and they, so we're using warehouses in L.A., uh, Birmingham, the United Kingdom, Toronto, um, yeah, Sydney, or somewhere else in Australia, I can't remember, Hong Kong, um, and we're looking at Germany and we're looking at Brazil. Shipwire. They kind of do like the like the order processing label creation, right? Yeah, they, they started very much as servicing the direct-to-consumer business, which is a big part of what we do as well. Um, but our wholesale business is considerably larger. And so it's been you know a bit of a push and pull to get them to behave as <laughs> a like a, a real distribution warehouse. Um, but they're, they've been adapting and I, I personally, uh, am a big fan of, of Shipwire. Um, even after they got purchased by a much larger distribution group in Ingram Micro, I think their efforts have been pretty, um, laudable. And then I, I, we'd add another warehouse to it in Chicago. We're using a company called RMI and they're in the reverse logistics business. So all of our returns and warranty issues go to them. 
and then they do an amazing job of grading the products, refurbishing the products, repackaging them, and getting them to be either, uh, you know, back in, into the regular workflow or, or a ch through an eBay channel or other used channel or completely recycled. Okay, let's get into Kickstarter. So when you first launched that product, you kind of mentioned like how you found out about Kickstarter, but I'm curious why you chose Kickstarter versus Indiegogo or some other platform. You know, I think I, I've heard that Indiegogo actually started before Kickstarter technically. I think uh, they did, yeah. Yeah, uh, but you know, it didn't it didn't cross my mind and Kickstarter seemed so new and revolutionary. It didn't it again didn't cross my mind that there would even be a competitor. Um, and you know, like this Kickstarter had the buzz too. Kickstarter was the one that you'd seen in the New York times, um, when you kind of Googled these other projects. And so it just seemed like there was real momentum behind that platform. And for, for what it's worth, I think that they have preserved that quite nicely. Yeah, I'd agree. The, um, so when you did launch, you were sort of an unknown, uh, you know, just this guy with this idea. How did you get the word out about that first campaign and product? I, I, uh, you know, I had about a thousand Gmail contacts I'd collected. I had a Facebook account where I probably had sub 1000 friends and I emailed and I put a Facebook post up and then, um, I think that what happened is that the, the platform is just novel enough at the time and there's enough excitement. Like, you know, I put the project up and within two minutes, some guy in the United Kingdom had backed the project. And I remember just like a incredible like spine tingle going through as like, how did this person find this and then make a purchase decision within two minutes? And the guy lives in England and I'm sitting in a chair in San Francisco and I was blown away. Um, so the platform itself is this marketing platform. You know, it's spreading the word. Um, nowadays, we, we employ an incredible host of tools to do that. But at the beginning, it was just like, hey, family and friends, you know that thing I've been working on? Well, I launched it on Kickstarter. And I probably wrote some overly emotional, super long, <laughs> multi-paragraph soliloquy about it because that's kind of what I do. But uh, that was it. Right on. Yeah, I, I, a little bit further in this conversation, I want to talk about what kind of tools you guys are using now for marketing. But for that first one, you know, because I'm trying to think, like, there's a lot of, people out there that have an idea and this is going to be their first campaign and maybe they don't have a lot of money. So did you put any marketing dollars behind that first campaign or was it all just kind of this grassroots PR effort? On it was grassroots and it was it like the, the PR, like I wasn't even savvy enough to know to reach out to PR. I'm not kidding. I like it, 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 it got picked up by a group called Petapixel, which is still a really popular blog in the photography world. Did I even know about Petapixel? No, I did not. Um, and then, and then, uh, and um, Gizmodo ran it. And when oh, Gizmodo man. ran it, it was like, boom! It was it was so cool because like all of a sudden something just started happening. Like pledges started rolling in like crazy, and I had no idea why. And it was just like, I mean, dude, imagine this! It was just so wild. Um, working on something for so long, like getting fired from the bar, from the busboy job, having a kid on the way, and then all of a sudden, all these pledges start rolling in. It was it was absolutely thrilling. Why do you think Gizmodo and Petapixel picked this up and ran it? Because it was a genuinely cool, innovative, useful product. 
I was kind of hoping you'd say that because that's that's what, how I feel is that there's some products on there that are just like they don't get traction. I mean, I see this all the time. Like, well, we don't really post about the ones that I don't think have um, potential on Bike Rumor, but there's a ton of cycling products that launch on Kickstarter, and you can just look at them sometimes, and you're like, man, that is just like somebody was had a project in their mind and thought they should do it because it's different, not better, not cool, not useful, just different, and. Yeah, it's. Uh, I feel like having something that's truly unique and cool and, and useful and, and like checks off all those buttons. That's step number one in launching something and and trying to make a success of it. Absolutely, man. And everyone's asking like, what's the magic? And it's like, have a great idea and execute on it at least pretty well. Yeah, all the marketing in the world isn't going to save a crappy no. product. That's right. Right on. So how? much did you spend on that campaign not not the product itself i mean did you spend any money marketing that first campaign i didn't even know that was an option (laughs) (laughs) i'm not kidding i know i'm painting myself to be just a royal idiot uh but in 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 like i i'm i'm kind of like thinking back on it i'm like was i that dense (laughs) or was this just was it so uncommon i mean obviously it was 2011 like I'm pretty sure Google started in 2001, um, but it literally never occurred to me. I mean, and, and probably that's because right from day number two, it was like it was on the on the kind of the growth curve to maybe tape take out the number one slot ever on Kickstarter, but certainly it was on pace to be number two most funded project of all time. So. I, perhaps I didn't even consider doing marketing because it was like, well, this is clearly winning. This is, it's, it's working. Just didn't need it. Why would I, you know, why would I mess with a good thing? Yeah. I'm curious, like Kickstarter then versus Kickstarter now. I mean, the, so many people use Kickstarter to launch a project now. Um, I, you know, I, I would love to know what the numbers are in growth, but back then, maybe if you posted something cool, the chances of it being found organically on Kickstarter were probably much higher than they are now. Do you think it's, is it still maybe a good idea to just sort of put it up on Kickstarter and hope for the best because it's a cool product or are you just going to get lost in the stream of stuff? Well, I don't think that's a good idea necessarily. I'm not saying that it couldn't it couldn't happen because I think while there are it's it's so much bigger of a platform than it was, there's also still more eyes that are kind of patrolling it than there were before. Um, that said, media outlet is kind of a little bit reticent to to post about yet another Kickstarter unless it's something that catches fire. Um, and so I think nowadays there is so much knowledge and infrastructure built up around like what steps should you take on day one when you're launching that Kickstarter. So, it, it, you know, almost like there's a whole cottage industry of Kickstarter marketing that has cropped up that you really, I think, ought to engage with if you want to have the most successful Kickstarter that you can. Um, that being said, the ultimate determinant of your success is still going to be, is your is your product good? Is it something that people want? Because that's what drives the percentage of people that will that will convert and getting eyes to the page is it's it's another part of the equation but it's not for me it's less fundamental right now that you guys are more established i imagine it's it's kind of a 
non-issue to convince people that you're going to actually follow through and produce the product. But when you had that first campaign, like, do you think there was anything that you were doing to convince people that this was a legitimate product and you were actually going to see it through production and delivered to them? Totally. Those, those early bird units, um, which were kind of, a uh, so to, to give a little more clarity, I launched it on May 2nd, 2011, and it was going to fund on August 16th. And, um, wow, that's, that's a really long campaign. 75 days. Yeah. They shortened, they shortened the available. You were allowed to do 90 days at the time. And I was like, 75 is enough. My, my kid was going to come around <laughs> July and I just wanted to have enough bridge on either side of that to not have to, you know, deal with it so intensely. Um, and now it's, it's shorter. Now 60 days is the max you can do. Um, but let's see here. Uh, oh, what did I do to, to prove, you know, I had the units like I had, I had, I was going to China during the, or excuse me. No, I wasn't going to China. I was having the units shipped cause I was, I was still making them with a company in Alameda called SKS die casting. Now they, they were actually being made in China at their sister factory, so to speak. Um, but I was going and picking them up in Alameda. And so I was able to assemble you know, I kind of said th th these were what are called the first article units, like they're the first things out of the tool, and you're supposed to inspect them for perfection. And I was like, well, if you're making five of them, can you just make a hundred of them? And they're like, well, sure, we can do that. And I was like, well, how about 200 then? And uh, so I had to make 200 units, and I gathered a bunch of friends. And we assembled these things using all the little, like, dude, the springs in these things were homemade. They were homemade. They, I, I bought, I bought stainless steel off of McMaster car and made a little jig that I literally pounded the springs with a hammer, um, and and put them in place. And those products do have a lifetime warranty on them, and some of them still work quite remarkably. Actually, most of them. Um, but uh, yeah, like you know, we had that we had that kind of party going on in late May, and a lot of pictures. Like, there's the there's the product. It's coming. Um, so that's another one of the really key advantages to actually getting production going before you launch your Kickstarter or at least during. Yeah. What are some of the other things you've seen either from other campaigns or that you guys have done since to, uh, you know, instill confidence in the potential customer? Um, you know, it's, uh, I, I'd say it's just a vastly different situation. Like you pointed out the, the, the first one compared to the seventh one, or even the second one, frankly. Like, you've just got so much credibility built up. And uh, I don't know, I can't, I don't have off the top of my head, like, the figures of return customers that you have, but the number of return customers is extraordinarily high. Um, and so they have great faith in you. But I, I, I suppose the key is, and this is kind of a core tenant of Peak Design, one of our core values is extraordinary trans transparency. Just at every turn, let people go, know what's going on and be completely honest and forthcoming. Right. Uh, that's been, that has been the magic. And frankly, it's like, it's permeated all of our, all of our marketing seems to in one way evidence the fact that that's how we behave and people just see us as an authentic company that's trustworthy as a result. Right. Yeah, so you guys have quite a few campaigns under your belt now, all very successful. Let's talk about some best practices. So regarding just the campaign as a whole, 
what do you think are some of the key elements of a successful crowdfunding campaign? Um, okay. Well, be very, very far in the process of producing your product. That's kind of number one. And obviously, you might need that money from Kickstarter to actually hit go on manufacturing because you might not have another source of money. But take it as far as you can because there are so many problems that you are going to encounter that you don't know about and you need to flush those out. So that's rule number one. Um, in, in that same vein, it's kind of like don't, don't use Kickstarter as a proving ground for whether you think something will work. Use it as a sales and marketing tool. And so you might ask, like, well, what's the proving ground then? And the proving ground, in my opinion, needs to be generated by you taking your product or idea around and truly shopping it and truly finding those people who are going to be honest with you about whether they think it's going to be successful, about how much they will pay. Time for a quick sponsor message. There's a lot to consider when figuring out the money you'll need to raise to launch your brand. As you'll hear in a second, it's good to know as much of that in advance as possible to help keep things on schedule. But sometimes, you're already up and running before you realize there's something you need, like life insurance. Maybe you're protecting your investors, your family, or those who rely on your business for their livelihoods. It doesn't matter who. When you realize there's another line item to add to the budget, it always feels good when you know you can minimize that cost and that's where Health IQ comes in. They work on behalf of healthy people to get us better rates on life insurance by negotiating with the world's largest underwriters. We get the coverage we need, and we save money doing it. For a quick, free quote, and to support this podcast, go to healthiq.com slash buildcycle. That's healthiq.com slash buildcycle. Thanks, and now back to this episode. You know, another thing I try to um, kind of caution people about, but it's make sure that you've got a healthy margin into your Kickstarter product. A lot of times, um, you know, founders will, or people who want to launch a project will come up to me and, and they'll say like, yeah, you know, I think I'm going to sell it for a hundred bucks. And I'll say, how much is it going to cost to make it? And they're like, well, about $95. <laughs> and I just, that, that, that is not a formula that's going to work because your best chance at making a profitable sale is going to happen on Kickstarter because the cost of acquiring that customer is only about 5% that you got to pay to Kickstarter and 3% for processing fees. And you are not going to uh, acquire that, that cheap of a customer, so to speak, in the future, especially not if you're selling into the retail environment where you sell a $100 product and you're going to get 40 to $60 for that product. So it's kind of a fundamental it's one of the other fundamentals. If you don't have the margin built in, you don't have a profitable business. And I, like the, the, <laughs> since the dawn of time, the key to business has been make something or do something for a certain amount and sell it for more. So it's, it's a really fundamental aspect of business, and it certainly applies to a Kickstarter. As far as the visual elements go, you know, how is the video the most important thing or is it the rest of the story that you're telling on the campaign page? Um, in my opinion, the video was certainly the most important thing, 
Um, I'd say nowadays it's less so. We've seen a little bit less video play compared to like some people just don't even play the video, hmm. and there's kind of an expectation that the that the animated gifs below and the and and the copy is going to sufficiently describe what it is, and that's part of the fact that even compared to 2011, our attention spans have just gone down the hole. You know, people can barely be be pried away for a moment. Um, that being said, I still think the video is by far and away the best way to show up like to, if, if you want to try to reel in customers that become lifetime customers that are telling the story about your product and your brand around the dinner table or when they see someone else with your product in the wild if you want to acquire those kind of customers which I'd highly suggest you try to do you got to show them who you are as a person um, that's been the most poignant thing for me is that it is seeing so many of our customers in the wild and they all know who I am and you can tell that they appreciate the fact that I have you know taken the time to introduce myself and keep them sort of updated on my life and the other key members of the team as we've grown so uh, it, it gives a sense of, of, of knowing that there are real people behind a company and I think it's it's one of the things that's made us thrive yeah. So in terms of the video and the, the written and picture part of the campaign page, and, and maybe the ratios are different, you can speak to that. Like how much of that time and space should be spent on kind of like telling your story and, and letting people get to know you versus really demonstrating the product and the features and the benefits? Uh, I'd say you should be able, you, you, you want to be able to explain who you are while explaining the features and the benefits. Because it's actually pretty boring to, to, to listen to somebody's story, but you can you can acquire a like or a dislike for a person while they're simply taking you through the ropes of what this thing does. Um, and so that's my suggestion because you know the, the time is is short, and concise is far better than not. Um, that being said, I don't know if you saw Moment Case just launched a 26 minute Kickstarter movie, oh my gosh. which is. It's it's kind of incredible though. It's like an it's like an episode of you know of a show, and you can desire to watch it, but you don't need to watch it in order to understand the product that they have. I really respect like the, the they're another company that's done a lot of kind of cutting edge stuff with respect to Kickstarter. So it was cool. In your opinion, what's the ideal length for a Kickstarter video? Ah man, um, you know I think like if you can keep it just under three minutes, that's awesome. Um, I'd say that's your that's your best bet. Yeah, it that seems be like that's a good shareable length on social media too, which probably could go a long ways toward sending eyeballs your way. Uh, definitely, definitely, yeah. That that seems to be the sweet spot for me. You know, I like. I actually think that that Kickstarters are or, or the feel of a video. I think the music has so much to do with it, um, and you know, like it's it's a you want it to be about the length of a short song. Yeah. Do you guys still produce the videos and everything in house? We do. Uh, the I should say the number six. We we worked with an outside group of videographers and editors, um, but because before it was myself and Pete Lockett, our uh, our kind of head of supply chain that would make the videos, both the, the photography and the and the editing. And you know, it's just like, it's just not our core competency. Um, were you know we were we were passable, um, and people seem to to credit our, our videos. We we put a lot of time into them. We tried really hard, but 
you can definitely see the, the, the professionality going up. So now we've got a video guy in house who came from the, the pro world. He was, he was a, mostly a shooter, but, um, also now kind of getting quite heavy back into the editing game. And I, I really like having control of that in house. It's just such an important thing that we do. Yeah. I, well, it's like you have this story in your head. We talked about this. I, I talked about this with a previous guest, Mike Cotty from the call collective. You know, it's, it's, it's really hard to get that story out of your head and into somebody else's head and let them edit. And if you're right there and you can work with it and make sure it's sold the way you want, that's the, really like it saves a lot of time in the long run, I think. You mentioned music. Where do you guys source your music from? Uh, you know, uh, what we do is basically um, in, in more recent years, I just I, I spend a lot of time on Spotify. And if you go to songs that you like and then you press the radio function, um, you'll, you'll, you'll start, you know, encountering more obscure songs and every so often there'll be one that has just like the right beat and the right feel. I mean, this is, you kind of got to go the route of non, uh, not having vocals. And then once you find that you can always get a hold of them via the internet and, you know, chances are they're small and their license fee is going to be something around the three to $700 range. Um, and, and for us that's, you know, that's totally workable. Um, so that's, that's kind of our most common tactic. That's pretty cool. I hadn't heard that strategy before. Yeah. You know, like this, all the stock we previously, we'd gone to like the stock music sites and you just listen to song after song after song. And like they're, they're totally decent. And I have respect for the, the artists who are creating those things. Um, but it, um, it, it, when it's not part of an album, when music isn't cre being created to be part of an album, there's just less love that goes into it. And so I think that when it comes from an album, that's an artist putting out their absolute best foot forward. And that's where that music should come from, I think. Other than music and obviously demonstrating the product, well, are there any other one or two like key elements to producing a good video? It's all about your drone game, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's funny. I think that... Um, we've always tried to do things different than what we've seen. Um, the, the formula, like if you look at the first Kickstarter video that I, that I made, I mean, it's a, it's quite embarrassing right now, but at the time it was regarded as a good video. And like that became the formula for a long time. Like, Hey folks, I'm this person and this is what I used to do. But then I did this and I went traveling or, and I had some experience and it made me think of this. Could there be a better way? And you know, like that, that survived for a long time. Um, but each time that we, that we are writing the story for our next product, it's got to be kind of on the heels of everything we've done in the past. Um, and so from a, you know, like from a cinematography standpoint, we never get overly complicated, but we do try to do creative things that uh, can be done with e with readily accessible tools. Um, I'm thinking of like the on on um, the Everyday Messenger campaign where we had Adam's voiceover continue over me kind of mouthing the words and Trey Ratcliffe. Uh, <laughs> The, the photographer mouthing the words and like that brought this element of humor into it, which I think is actually extremely important. Trying to trying to show humor and humility uh, in your campaigns is really important. Um, so I don't know, like w we definitely want to make it um, 
something a little bit special each time. Right on. What are some of the biggest mistakes that either you guys have made in your campaigns or that you've seen others make? Um, let's see here. Uh, you know, there's product. There, there, there was there was a major product mistake uh, in our slide campaign, where basically we shipped the first seven thousand units, and while the samples that we'd gotten it all worked great, um, the 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 spring that was hold that was supposed to hold the camera in place was popping out and it was effectively going to pop out on all seven thousand of those units, which would have been I mean it was disastrous for a couple of people who experienced it and we heard about it real quick via a very prominent blog um, and we just halted everything and um, so it was slightly post Kickstarter but because all the product was released on Kickstarter we have total access to every single person who's backing that campaign so when you send out urgent emails like don't use that strap that we just sent you we need to figure some things out you can get a hundred percent coverage on that um so that's both a problem and and a kind of a, a lesson for why kickstarter can be great because if those things are going out going out via wholesale we have no no way to contact those customers um, so it's just another reason why Kickstarter is great. Uh, another mistake that we made, which we didn't know we were making, but it's a mistake apparently, is we had toyed around with the idea of doing early bird, like early bird rewards in one of our later campaigns that were limited to like a thousand, and those all got gobbled up lightning quick. But then when they ran out and you had to pay ten dollars more, and it no longer said limited reward conversion went down to 25% of what it was. So three quarters of the sales just stopped. And what we found out was that like, and, and, and then we, we told all of our backers like, Hey guys, something went funny here. What we're going to do is start making 100 more units become available at a time and test that out. And as soon as we started making 100 more of those limited ones available, the, the conversion quadrupled. Again, I mean, it was like turning the water on and off. Um, and so that was by far and away the most impactful, like kind of, I don't know, procedural thing that, that it's ever affected us. And uh, it's just, it also goes to, to say something about consumer behavior, like the, 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 the scarcity complex is real for people. Yeah. They really found it hard. But I wonder, though, it almost seems like it, it gave you those super quick sales, like an immediate sellout of that, but then it hurt the long-term, like short-term gain, long-term loss. Do you do you guys still do early bird deals, or do you kind of stay away from those now? So now what we do is, and we announced this at the beginning of our campaign again, and this is like, um, it's... I don't think it's duplicitous because we say very clearly and transparently that this is what we're going to do. But we basically we show limited rewards on there and we just keep ticking it up. It's ridiculous. I know it probably sounds like it's the it's the it's definitely the most like morally questionable thing I think that we do. Um, and we we sort of absolve ourselves by saying very clearly on the campaign that this is what we're doing. So explain that. What do you mean by ticking it up? So we start with a thousand, uh, or, or 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 something like that. We say that there are a thousand rewards available, and as you get to nine hundred of them sold and a hundred left, we will change the quantity available to saying fifteen hundred, 
And so then there's like 700 available. And all it does is it keeps the, the notion that they are limited up at the top there. And we wouldn't do that if we, if we didn't see that it's literally two to one if we just have that limited function on there or not. So in our like kind of Kickstarter manual, we talk about that just really wild phenomenon uh, pertaining to, to sales. That's not, that's, I mean, that's crazy. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Absolutely. And, and is that you, indefinitely? You just keep taking it up like this. So basically, that's really like the Kickstarter price then. Yes. We don't even have another Kickstarter price. <laughs> There's only the limited reward. That's the only option. Just, right. That's right. <laughs> that's right. And, and however, the, the, another way that it's not, you know, that it's, that it's less sort of duplicitous, if you will, is that it really does make sense to have a cap on how many you're going to be making and or selling during during Kickstarter because like it's it's very important to plan these things for production because again we try to roll into the production and then and then roll that right into full worldwide distribution fairly seamlessly and so knowledge of how many you're going to sell is really important yeah but so you mentioned margins earlier how much of a discount do you typically sell something on Kickstarter for versus the full retail um, uh, average of about 21%. Okay. And is that just a number you came at based on what you guys needed to make? Or is it just sort of you settle on that after seeing how much of a discount would actually entice people to pony up ahead of time? I think it's more, more the latter. Um, and it's kind of like historically, uh, that's, that's where we've just try, tried to average things out. Um, yeah. All right. I got kind of a business question and then get back to a few Kickstarter ones. The, the, the pricing and the wholesale stuff and all that. So you started off as a direct-to-consumer with the first Kickstarter campaign. At what point did you decide to start selling into through retail and wholesale channels again or to begin with? Well, immediately because during that first Kickstarter campaign, like half the – not half the messages, but I got a lot of messages from people all over the world. Hey, I'm so-and-so. I have a – either I have a camera store or I have a distribution company in the Netherlands and I'd like to sell this product. Um, and so right out the gate, um, we were dealing in the wholesale world, which was interesting because I had no idea like what was normal um, to give away. And we settled on a kind of like a pricing scheme that we've left pretty much untouched, um, which I think is great. Uh, basically, retailers get roughly, um, we, the, the kind of the terminology is they get 40 points. So that means that for if, if we have a product that retails for 100 bucks, we sell it to them for 60. And then for distributors who are you know one more layer and they're in a foreign country and they have a number of challenges, generally speaking, we give 60 points. So that means that we are selling our $100 product for $40. So you can see it gets quite thin quite quickly. Yeah. And with our, with our bags, they're more expensive to make and we just can't even make money selling it at 60, giving 60 points away. So we pinched that down to more like 50 points on our bags for international distributors. And when you first started out, did you luck into having that kind of margin built into the price or did you sort of know ahead of time that, hey, maybe I should add a lot of padding just in case? Um, so when I first started out, the you know I had no idea how much this thing was going to cost. And um, I knew how much I wanted to sell it for. At first, actually, I thought 50 bucks was a fair price. 
um, and then seeing the seeing the reaction on the Kickstarter, particularly for the the early bird units that were selling for a hundred dollars a piece, and how quickly they all got snapped up, and how happy the customers were with it. Um, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. I had initially thought seventy dollars and fifty dollars as the Kickstarter price. I ended up making it eighty dollars as a result of kind of the fervor that was created by the product. Um, but as far as how much it cost and what my margins were, I had no idea going into this. And I remember sitting at uh, sitting with my, my girlfriend at the time um, when I got an email from SKS Diecasting, this company in Alameda. And they're like, well, here's the quotes for the five main parts that made up the product. And I first read their, read their quote to do it onshore in Alameda. And it was $44 for a set of <laughs> And I was like, oh, God, that is just not going to work. And I scrolled down, and they're like, well, here's the, cho- the quotes to do it in China. It's eight bucks <laughs> for all five parts. Amazing. And, I mean, my first reaction was like, so that's why stuff is made in China. Um, and then my, but then years later, I would learn that I was also paying a 100% uh, upgrade or excuse me, uh, 100% margin to, to SKS die casting. So in reality, had I, had I gone and so sourced those parts directly would have been more like four bucks in China. So, uh, four you can see is quite a bit different than, than 40, 42 or 44, what that was before. But it just like, I remember distinctly being like, holy shit, I'm in business. Like, that's, you know, I still had the balance of the product to make the packaging and the springs and the screws and all that stuff. And I recall the, I think I recall the first bomb, like all in the, the build of materials for that first product being $13 and 82 cents. Um, and that was with assembling them in America, um, right kind of in, in San Francisco. Um, so that was awesome. Um, that was like the first product and it had great and healthy margin built into it. Um, our margins have never improved, believe it or not, over that. Um, and that's uh, largely because our products have gotten more complex and we've added in more features without increasing the retail price. So that, it's kind of funny that we're out of the gate, that was the best margin that we ever got was that first product. Jump back to Kickstarter. So you mentioned couple of mistakes the one with kickstarter being you know the early bird pricing scheme versus just a, a single limited offer as far as running a kickstarter campaign or anything else are there any other errors you've seen or experienced or warnings that you'd give to somebody else getting ready to launch their first one uh yeah i mean like that the, the the first uh, I'll, i'm gonna say it again just because people seem to miss it um like make damn sure that you know how to make this product um and so get as far as you can in the list. So that's the number one thing, like, you know, coolest cooler, that kind of disaster sort of thing, like just got hit with way more than, than, than they could do and like have margin. Otherwise you're going to be in trouble. And then, um, be authentic, be truthful, be transparent and be yourself. How long does it actually take to get your money from Kickstarter once the campaign closes? Uh, you know, it's been variable over the years. I think it's like 12 days right now. Oh, that's pretty quick. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So you've got a product, you've, you've finished the campaign and what's next? It sounds like you guys start delivering almost sometimes during the campaigns, but generally speaking, like what are the next steps after a campaign closes? 
generally speaking, you know, like we'd love for it to happen that week, but that never happens. It's always about a a month or two beyond the end of the, of the date when the shipments start going out, because you know it it really helps if you can if you can use boats in your shipping as opposed to as opposed to airplanes, but it takes a hell of a lot more time. You know, to go from Vietnam to the United Kingdom is six weeks on a boat, um, plus a you know a potential of a week either side for custom stuff. So, um, you know, having those ducks in a row is really important, but, um, I think that it's important to, you know, maintain a frequency of communication that is, uh, on the not annoying, but informative enough to keep things top of mind. And, you know, if you're advancing your business enough where you're dealing with these wholesale, uh, situations, like there's a lot of infrastructure to set up, especially if this is your first product like it's all about setting up the infrastructure getting those 3pls um, decided like get your, you have to get your master cartons right like the whole art of shipping things around the world is um, it's intense there's a lot that needs to go into that so make sure you have all that stuff dialed in can't overemphasize that enough and customer service as well you know you're going to have you make sure you you're able to handle the volume of customer service because that stuff is extremely important. You guys now probably could launch a product without, but you seem to keep returning to Kickstarter for your new products. Why is that? For every possible, like you, you name a possible benefit and I guarantee you it'll be better on Kickstarter. Uh, and I can also name benefits, um, cash flow, right? We're getting money we might be making the product beforehand, but we're still getting paid on that, like before customers actually receive the product. Cash flow is the absolute king of a business, particularly a growing business. Um, you're constantly having to pay out cash to pay suppliers and, and, and shipping companies and everything before you're receiving the money. Um, and so people do not realize how, how big of a deal that is. So um, even if it were that alone, it would be a no-brainer. Um, but there's, the, there's kind of the inherent marketing of Kickstarter. People are just on that platform, and about 25% of our, of our sales come or, organically generated from that platform each time. There's the fact that when you run a Kickstarter campaign, it has the potential, at least, to be a news story. Um, and like get garner a lot of press, especially for us at this point, since we kind of hold a title as being the most funded active company, obviously you can imagine how that's interesting for the press to talk about. Um, whew, let's see here. Uh, oh, just, uh, paying respect to our customers who got us there. Like we were born on Kickstarter. It has launched our company, um, I would feel bad about about launching companies and not inviting the Kickstarter community to be a part of bringing these things to life. Um, another reason is because you get to display your product in like full glory. You know, you get three to four minutes of people's attention. You can create an incredible video that ropes more and more people into your not just that product or that or, or that project, but into your company and into that ecosystem. So the, the quality of engagement is just as good as it gets. Um, and even conversion, like for whatever reason, compared to people who visit our, our, our website, when people visit a Kickstarter, the conversion is way higher, like two to three times. Hmm. So I, like I, 
you know, it's not going to work for General Electric to launch a product on Kickstarter. But for anyone like anyone like us, it's just head and shoulders above any other platform. Once you've fulfilled all the Kickstarter orders, all the backers have their stuff, you still have those products to sell, sometimes in a retail environment. Like, How do you maintain the momentum on a product to keep the sales growing after the campaign is done? Uh, yeah, it's all about like, it, I mean, the, the word of mouth, nothing drives more product sales like people receiving a product and being stoked about it because you tell your friends. And like word of mouth and and, and type of marketing is still so important. Um, I, you know, like I don't, I don't have the stats in front of me, but it's a major component of how people find out about peak design. Um, so that's one, one great way to get the momentum going. Um, and you know, like I think that, uh, keep on the PR engine. The, 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 the PR is like, has the potential to be a free marketing engine in that you yourself can find editors, of blogs and magazines of which there are so many and um you know just reach out yeah you guys do a ton of video uh, you know not just the kickstarter videos but like your youtube channel is just stacked full of like product demos and this that and the other like how important is that as part of your marketing mix uh i think it's pretty crucial for both marketing and like product support because all of our products have little hidden features that you know, unless you're, you're, you're pointed to them, you might not realize them. And these are also the things that really delight people when they use our products. So that's why with every, with every product that we make, our formula is we have kind of the glossy Kickstarter overview video. And then we've got what we call a deep dive video, which is just product feature focused. And then we've got a how to, which is more like colloquial, like, Hey, here's Lawrence from the team or Victor or Sasha going to get up and uh, do do one of the projects or excuse me take take people through a product so um, we like we like hitting them uh, from those multiple angles yeah and you guys do Google Hangouts and these kind of like times almost up videos near the end of the campaigns and stuff how do how do you use those to either build sales or build awareness uh, the Kickstarter has been kind of adding those to. Well, first it was Google Hangouts, and they and and sort of by our idea to use those um, because the two-way engagement is just really cool. Um, and now Kickstarter kind of got on that and they said, let's build our own product within our own website um, that can be a little more optimized for it. And it's great. the The participation is really high, and you know what? Another great opportunity to show that. We are we are far from a nameless, faceless company. We're just a bunch of screwballs um, having a pretty good time doing this. And do you just use the email list from people who have followed the project or already backed it to uh, to let people know about those one-on-one -on -one and online video sessions? Or you know, how do you get how do you people know about them? Well, once once you've got the once backers are engaged, you can send updates um, via Kickstarter. And that's the that's the best way. For whatever reason, those get re, those get consumed a lot more than emails do. I think it, it shows up in an email in their inbox. But I don't know. You're 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 financially invested in a product, and so when there's you know, news about it, I guess you want to find out. Yeah. Cool. All right. So I got a couple of closing questions for you that I'd like to ask all my guests. Is there a management or a logistics issue about running your company that keeps you up at night? Hmm. Uh, a good question. Um, the, and uh, yeah, I, ha I have an answer for you. Um, it, 
I lose a little bit of sleep over the fact that so we're based in San Francisco and you know when we all got started we were kind of in late 20s and now we're we're you know I'll be 35 next month um and like it's that's a time of great change for people's lives and it basically means uh babies and and houses um and those things are very hard to pull off in the bay area when you're a consumer products company um, you know, we're not we're not a tech company. Our our, our team isn't making two hundred thousand dollars, which seems to be like what it takes to raise a family in the city. Um, and you know, everyone every individual employee's situation is different, but there we're, we're kind of seeing a little bit of an exodus out of the city. And those people still very much want to work for Peak Design, and they're 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 very much being allowed to. I mean, all the knowledge that's built up. But uh, I'd be lying if I said that I wasn't worried about like what will happen to the culture of Peak Design. Will it be able to maintain, even though that that physical office is less full of these people who really are at the heart of the company. I mean, that's what that's what the company is. It's the it's a combination of the personalities that gather for. A certain number of hours a week in the office and make products and make jokes and care about each other um, so that is the the biggest thing that I worry about that said I'm, I'm pretty optimistic that we'll pull it off do you think you could transplant the office to a new location and just kind of move people and, and keep that culture or would you end up with a different location bringing sort of a, a new vibe I would certainly bring a new vibe and like, you know, I've got, I've got people that like for their own reasons, I've got one that wants to go to Boulder. I've got one, I've got one that's living in two that are living in Tahoe right now. Um, I, uh, one who wants to move to Ojai, which is down in Ventura, California. Um, one who wants to move to Maine. Um, we've already got our head of marketing in Austin and two folks in the UK. So we are really spread out. I think that the answer is going to be to get a peak design, like, house like a corporate house in san francisco and um probably you know make uh just strongly encourage people to fly back rather frequently and kind of have a lot of social events when the office is full and i think there'll be kind of this ebbing and flowing of like people come together and it's all hectic and it's busy and it's productive and it's fun but it's like you know so much so that it's not sustainable for all time and then everyone's going to recede into their corner and that's kind of when the quiet heads down work focus gets done and I personally have been working that way for a while living between Chicago and San Francisco to be with my daughter in Chicago about 11 days a month so um, I know it's workable and you know we make pretty good use of, of I'd say our, our, our two tools are slack and zoom zoom video conferences are really amazing and slacks awesome um, so it's, you know, it's going to be a test for us for sure, but I think it's going to be fun. Cool. All right. Last one. What advice would you give to entrepreneurs that are looking to do something similar to what you guys have done? Do it. <laughs> Love it. Do it. Um, yeah, like it's, uh, even if it doesn't work out, like it is going to be one of the experiences of your lifetime and you will learn an incredible amount and no employer is going to look upon that and be like, well, look at this hole in your resume. Bullshit. It's the opposite of that. It's like, wow, you took a chance, huh? That's amazing. Why didn't it work out? And you've got a great list of the reasons why it didn't work out, and it shows that you've learned so much. So it's another thing that I'll say is like the happiness that comes from, from this job 
it's it's actually even more fun when you're just starting out and before the success comes because it's all an adventure and at the end of the day that's what's the most fun thing in life so my advice do it awesome peter man thank you so much for your time it was great talking to you yeah really enjoyed it tyler thank you appreciate it Peter has built an impressive business, and it all started with a simple idea that would solve one of his own problems, a small loan from his parents, and a friend's suggestion that he try this new thing called Kickstarter. So many massive companies have been built on similarly small starts, and the crowdfunding platforms make it easier than ever to try it yourself. But like any business, there are a million ways to do it wrong. Just because your startup funding is coming through a different channel doesn't mean you can ignore profitability and good design. And by good design, I don't just mean a cool new thing that will attract a lot of attention. One of my earliest guests on this podcast talked about design for manufacturing, which means designing your product so that it can actually be made in a mass production setting. This is something many first-time inventors and founders don't think about until it's too late. Peter suggests getting your item production ready before launching your campaign. That means having all of the testing done, lining up manufacturers, receiving samples and testing them, and being ready to hit go the second the campaign ends, sometimes even before it ends. Thanks for listening. Find links to Peter's site plus the resources and services he uses to run his company in the show notes at thebuildcycle.com podcast. While you're there, click that link to find me on Apple Podcasts and leave a quick rating and review. That really helps and I appreciate all of the great feedback. Here's hoping you're kickstarting something awesome. Until next time, keep building.